And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, we thank you that it is a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thank you for his incredible mercy, for you owed us nothing but the wrath our sin deserves, but you've chosen to step out of the realms of glory and to take on our humanity And in a substitute, your son, you've poured your wrath that we can be forgiven. Thank you that you've raised him up, declaring to all men everywhere that they must repent because you have fixed a day in which you will judge the world through him. Thank you, our Father, that when you save us, you save us not just for heaven, but to change us as new creatures in Christ Jesus, that we might reflect more and more of the image and glory of Jesus Christ that we might be viable witnesses for him in the midst of an ever-growing, decadent, evil world. And we need your help for that to be a reality. And so we open our hearts to you this morning as we open your word. Thank you that like newborn babes, as we long for the pure milk of the word, we can grow. But we need your help to understand what it says and how to apply it in our lives today. We don't want to be, Father, those who just hear but do not obey Help us to have ears to hear and then wills to apply the truth that you will show us. Holy Spirit of God, work in our midst today amongst those who have never met you. I pray that you would speak through me and to me, that you would fill me and anoint me, because without you I can't do anything. I thank you with you all things are possible. May our Savior, the Lord Jesus, be glorified. We ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 9. If you are with us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this incredible book. The Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic schedule is the rapture of the church. And then after the church has been removed, a seven-year period known as the time of Jacob's trouble, known as the great tribulation period, will begin. And the world will see... Some things that are so horrible, so frightening, so terrible, so take-your-breath-away kind of events that you wouldn't believe it unless you read it in God's Word. Jesus, in describing this coming seven-year period, said, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, Jesus is the truth. He's truth incarnate, and he never, ever exaggerates. It's an incredible prophecy that he makes. When you consider all the holocausts, all the famines, all the wars, all the diseases, all the earthquakes, all the tsunamis, all the hurricanes, all the volcanoes, all of the atrocities that have happened since the creation of Adam and Eve, and if you add them all together, Jesus said this coming time frame doesn't even compare to what man has already seen. And so that's what we're studying in these important chapters. We left off last time in verse 12, so we want to begin reading in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 9. Follow with me. 
Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are not bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorcery, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Now let me walk you into the broad context and then the immediate context. If you are new to the book of Revelation, its theme is Jesus is coming again. The theme of the Revelation is given in the opening chapter, the seventh verse, that he is coming on the clouds in glory. And the outline is given by God himself. He gave us the outline to the book of Revelation so that we can understand it. And so as this chart illustrates, John is told, commanded, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter one. He writes the glorified, he writes of the glorified vision that he sees of Christ in heaven. The things which are, that's present. He writes of seven churches that are functioning in the first century in 95 AD when he pens this book. And the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. That's chapters four all the way through the end of the book. So starting in chapter four through chapter 22, he's writing about the things after these things. The last two words, metatata, three words in our English Bible, after these things. When you come to chapter four and verse one, so that you cannot miss it, the verse begins and ends with those same two Greek words, the same three English words. It signals you, you're coming into a new section of the revelation. Look at four one. After these things I looked, behold, a, st- a door opened in heaven and the first voice, which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. This is emblematic, as we've studied, of the rapture of the church when God catches up his people. And we see 24 elders there at the throne of God. We saw the number 24 is a representative number of a large group. And we compared scripture with scripture where that was illustrated. And of course, the vision of the throne room of God is found in two other places, in Daniel's, the prophet's work, also in the prophet Isaiah. But what is unique about this throne room a revelation, though it's virtually identical to those other two chapters, it's unique in that only the 24 elders are present here. 
Why? Because the church has been caught up into heaven and they are worshiping there at the throne of God. And so what will unfold in chapters 6 through 19 is this unprecedented time known as the Great Tribulation. Now it's important that you keep these two events, the rapture and the second coming, distinct because God makes them distinct in His Word. First comes the rapture, then comes the second coming. First, Jesus comes for His saints. That's when He catches us up. The word rapto in Latin, we get our English word rapture. It's harpazo. They shall be caught up. I don't care what you call it, the rapture, the catching up. Some people say, well, the rapture is not a biblical doctrine because it's not found in the Bible. Yes, it is. It's found in the Latin Bible. It's a theological word like trinity, also not found in the Bible, but it captures a biblical truth. First, he comes for his saints. And then after seven plus years, he comes back with his saints. And of course, in the scripture, the word saint is used in three distinct ways. And so every time you see the word saint, you need to ask, what kind of saint is he referring to? He's not referring to the term saint the way our Roman Catholic friends use it. In Roman Catholicism, there is just a select elite group of people whom the church has declared to be saint by their lifestyle and some miracle or miracles that has to accompany that lifestyle. In the Bible, every believer is a saint. And there's three categories. There's Old Testament saints. And so the psalmist says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints in Psalm 34, 9. That's Old Testament sainthood, so to speak. The word saint means to be set apart. And sainthood in the New Testament, as well as in the Old, is by grace. It's not earned. It's not merited. It is the gift of God. Then, of course, there's New Testament saints who live in the church age. The church was a future entity. It didn't exist in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I will build my church, and it started on the day of Pentecost. So Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9, he's persecuting the saints, or you could say the church, the believers in Jerusalem. In the same chapter, the apostle Peter visits with the saints who lived in Lydda. It's used of all believers, and even in the most compromised, immoral church in the New Testament, the Corinthians, they are called in the opening verses of his first letter, saints by calling. And so the church has been raptured. And so the saints that are mentioned between chapters 4 and chapters 22 are what we would call tribulation saints. These are people who come to faith during the time of the great tribulation. So keep that in mind. When you come to chapter 5, with the rapture having taken place, you are given a signal that a change is coming. Look at 5.1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's the Father, a book, or better, a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. We studied how a seven-sealed scroll was a title deed. The Father has held it securely in His hand, but at this point in future uh, human history, He is going to pass the scroll to God the Son. When Jesus died on the cross, He redeemed not only man, but the creation. When Adam fell, all of creation fell with it. But when Jesus died, He purchased not only the people, but the earth on which they will stand. And so He is coming back to take legal right to the earth that God intended for Adam, for man to have, which he lost through his sin and rebellion. So the church is in heaven, 
And in chapter 6 and verse 19, we're told the wrath of the Lamb is unfolding on the earth. Now, when you come to chapters 6 through 18, there are 21 judgments. They come in the form of seal judgment, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. And they come consecutively in order. And so as you can see here, the first seven are the seven sealed scroll judgments. We studied the first four seals that um, picture the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then we studied the fifth seal that describes all those people who are going to be martyred because they believe in Jesus and reject the Antichrist. Then we looked at the sixth seal where there will be cosmic changes in the universe. And we saw that this perfectly parallels the first half of the Olivet Discourse. And with all 21 of these judgments, they come six, then there's a pause, and then the seventh. And so between the sixth and seventh seal, almost to let us catch our breath, There's a pause where God allows us to look back to see what is going on during this time of these six seals being loosed. And of course, in the seventh chapter, we read of the 144,000 Jews who come to faith, who share the gospel, and they bring into the kingdom people who had never heard the gospel before. There's no second chances if you are alive today and you're within the reach of the gospel. But for those who've never heard it in clarity and power, they will have an opportunity to repent. And there is an untold multitude that he likens to the sand of the seashore. When the seventh seal is opened, in the seventh seal are contained seven judgments. And so you, seven trumpet judgments. And so you can see once again the same pattern. Six trumpets, a pause in the seventh trumpet, and then when the seventh trumpet is blown, as we will see, there will be seven bold judgments in the exact same pattern. And so we've been studying in chapters 8 and 9 these seven trumpet judgments. We've looked at five so far, and when that seventh seal is opened, and now for the first time, unlike with the seal judgments, you can see only one at a time, All seven trumpets are visible, and in the seventh trumpet, all seven bold judgments are visible, and it is so awesome and so terrifying, there's total silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Now today, we're looking at trumpet number six, and so here we are in the second half of chapter nine. If you're using your outline, I want you to understand what this time on earth will be like when God asks his angel to blow the sixth trumpet. Three truths about this time are exposed for us. First, this is a time of demonic activity. It's a time of unparalleled demonic activity. We read now in verse 13, then the sixth angel sounded. Now you remember from chapter 8 and verse 6 that God had seven angels who held seven trumpets, each overseeing one of these judgments that caused silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Let me refresh your memory. Look at chapter 8 and verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, the Bible, as you know, describes different classification of angels. 
We've already seen in the fourth chapter the four living creatures that perfectly paralleled what Ezekiel calls cherubim in his prophecy. We looked at the seraphim when we looked at the vision of heaven that Isaiah was given in the sixth chapter. We've already spoken about Michael the archangel, and John will write much more about him before we're finished. But it appears that these seven angels, notice it's articular, it's not just seven angels, but these seven angels in the article is used very sparingly in Greek by the Spirit of God to underscore a very important truth. These are seven high-ranking angels, and we're told that they stand before God. And it's a tense in the original that indicates they've been standing in His presence for a long time. It's the exact same verbiage that Gabriel gives when he appears to Mary, and he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. It was the angel Gabriel, of course, who announced the birth of the Lamb of God. And now some other high-ranking angels are going to announce the terrible wrath of the Son of God. This is something that you are going to see. If you're a believer, you will have been caught up into heaven. You'll be part of this group that is absolutely stunned and silent for 30 minutes. And you will be watching... What we are reading today, our mouths will be silent as we watch. Perhaps Gabriel, perhaps Michael, perhaps five others. Some think there are seven archangels. Jewish tradition says that. Uh, We don't know for sure. There's only one named archangel. I know our hymn says highest archangels in glory, but there's only one for sure archangel. And maybe there's only one who's the counterpart of the evil one, Satan. I don't know. But these seven angels are not named. They're not termed archangels, but they are of great authority and they stand in God's presence. And they blow the trumpets. And we've seen in the Bible that trumpets, though used for music, are used in much greater ways than just as instruments of music. They're instruments of announcement. And so there are many reasons why God has trumpets blown in the Bible. Sometimes, as this slide shows, to call people to work or to call them from work because the Sabbath has begun. Sometimes to call them to worship. Sometimes as warning, trumpets of warning. And so the prophet speaks of the watchman on the wall and the trumpet that should have been blown. And then there are war trumpets in the Bible, calling them into battle and calling them out of battle. And by the way, the Romans, as underscored, in 1 Corinthians 14, also had trumpets calling people into battle and calling people out of battle. We as Christians, we are also waiting for a trumpet. It's called the trumpet of God, the last trumpet. The Romans would blow the first trumpet. It had a distinct sound, come into battle. Then they would blow the last trumpet, distinctly different in tone, calling them out of battle. We today are in a war. We are living in this age, but one of these days, the last trumpet is going to be sounded and the church will be called out of this war and will be carried home into heaven. And so here in verse 13, we have one of the seven angels who stands before God ready to announce the sixth trumpet judgment. Look at it. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Do you remember the golden altar? It was alluded to in chapters four and five and directly referenced earlier in chapter 8. It's very important. Go back to chapter 8 and verse 3. There we're told another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer 
And much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Here's a picture of the golden altar. You say, how do you know it looks like that? Because God gave us a blueprint in his word. He details all of the furniture that was in the Old Testament tabernacle, that tent-like structure that was mobile, which on a few occasions is called a temple, but it's a mobile temple. But David, if you remember, he's living in a beautiful home, and he says, God's living in a tent. Let's build him a real house. And of course, God allows him to get the materials, but Solomon builds the first temple, the Solomonic temple. And this altar is right before the veil in both the tabernacle and later the temple, right before the veil that goes into that region called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. And it was at the golden altar that they would burn incense, and the incense was symbolic of the prayers of God's people, of the priests ascending to God. We saw that imagery in chapter 5, verse 8. Let me read it to you. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp in golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Specifically, the golden bowls used at the golden altar were the prayers of the saints. And so incense is often symbolic of prayer in the Word of God. King David wrote in Psalm 141, May my prayer be counted as incense before you. Now, we've already seen, again, the golden altar and the brazen altar referenced in the Scripture. And we've seen those pictured up there in heaven. You say, what do you mean up in heaven? Well, I know uh, Charlton Heston, when he came down with the Ten Commandments under his arms, he had two tablets, but he should have also had a set of blueprints. Because when Moses came down the mountain, he not only had the Decalogue, the Big Ten, but he had the direct exact specifications for the tabernacle, which was later reproduced in the temple. The writer to the Hebrews, quoting Exodus 25, said, Moses was warned by God when he was about to wreck the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. The word pattern, or is the Greek word tupos, we get our word type. And so sometimes you will hear a pastor speak of a type. It's an important term. A type is an Old Testament picture or illustration of a New Testament reality. Abraham with Isaac on top of Mount Moriah, the same mountain Jesus died on, was a type of what Jesus was going to do when God gave his uniquely begotten son. Now, if you remember the book of Hebrews, you had Jewish Christians who were trying to escape persecution. And so in order to escape persecution from their Jewish brethren, they went back to temple worship. And the writer of the Hebrews underscores, you're worshiping in a shadow. The reality is Christ. You're worshiping under a blueprint when you should be worshiping the one who's your high priest who is in the building itself. There was a movie years ago. I never saw it, but I heard it was pretty good, but about some lost ark, the lost ark of the covenant. And, uh, you know, they're looking for the ark. I can tell you where the ark is. It's in heaven. Now, maybe it's under the Temple Mount, too. Some Jewish rabbis said they saw it there in the 1940s. I don't know, but there's a temple in heaven, and you're going to see it someday. And the one that was created on earth was just a shadow of the heavenly temple, and it's an important structure. 
We were in Israel on one trip, and we saw a tabernacle, I mean, built to the letter of the specifications in the Word of God. And I want to tell you, every piece of thread and color and piece of furniture pictured the work of Jesus Christ and what He would do. And so when we come to the 11th chapter, the 19th verse, we will read, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And the Ark of His Covenant was seen in His temple. So it's not by accident that verse 13 here in heaven is mentioning the golden altar. Look at 13 again of chapter 9. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now remember, a voice from the four horns, because this voice is going to give an answer to the prayer that God's people who have been martyred during the tribulation, who are in heaven, we heard them crying out with a loud voice, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who are on the earth? And so now God is going to begin to give the answer, and He's going to unfold it over the next several chapters. Remember, when the eighth chapter spoke up, there was uh, uh, began. There was eight angels. There's a seven with the seven trumpets, but there was an eighth angel, another angel, who calls these seven angels holding their seven trumpets. Now we're going to hear the voice. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, added almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed, so you don't want to get distracted by that in this in this particular frame. So at the end of 13, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying, this is angel number eight from the beginning of chapter eight, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. God is sovereign. God is over all of his creation. And right now there are four angels who are waiting at the great river Euphrates, who are bound until God unleashes them. And the six angels will say, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And I want to tell you when that happens, I know it's a cliche where all hell breaks loose, all hell will literally break loose. Now, the great river Euphrates is a very prominent river in the Word of God. Of course, today, geographically, it divides the Near East from the Far East. The Euphrates River is termed by anthropologists as the cradle of human civilization. But biblically, here in the Revelation, it's the grave of human civilization. Of course, it was in the Garden of Eden that the river Euphrates flowed from. And it was near the Garden near the uh, Euphrates River there in the garden that Satan tempted and beguiled Adam and Eve, and it was there where the first murder took place. So we're first introduced to the Euphrates when Adam fell, and then when Abel is martyred by his brother Cain for preaching the gospel. And it was alongside, of course, the Euphrates River that Nimrod who we studied in our series in Genesis, who is a type of the Antichrist, the very first human to seek through the Tower of Babel to build a world empire picturing the coming Antichrist. And of course, it was at the great river Euphrates where for 70 years when the people are carried off to Babylon, where there they find themselves. And we will learn before we're done with the revelation that the Antichrist will also have one of his headquarters at the great river Euphrates. But right now, in this particular scene, 
there are four powerful demons stationed and ready. And the four angels, verse 15, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now, a quick reading might cause you to think that these are God's holy angels because the text twice over in verses 18 and 20 remind us that they carry three plagues. But contextually and theologically, these are not holy angels. We will see these are fallen angels. Holy angels are never, ever, ever bound in Scripture. Only fallen angels are bound. Now, I mentioned if you were here last time that there's a number of different categories of fallen angels, and we'll study this more when we come to the 12th chapter. There are some angels who are eternally bound in a place Our Bible says hell, the Greek says Tartarus. It's a particular compartment of judgment. They are in eternal bonds, we are told in 2 Peter 2 and Jude verse 6. They committed a heinous sin. They left their natural domain and they cohabitated with women. And so God locked them up forever. They have no freedom whatsoever. Then in addition, as this chart shows, there are some angels that are temporarily bound in a place called the abyss. Remember when Jesus, there in Kersey, it's recorded in Matthew 8, Luke 8, I think Mark 5. He meets the two madmen of Gadara, uh, and uh, they are demon-possessed. And the head demon calls himself Legion because there's so many. And Jesus casts out 2,000 of those demons into the swine and they run directly down into the Sea of Galilee. We're going to that place, Lord willing, in just a few months. But those demons beg Jesus not to be sent into the abyss because demons that are in the abyss... They are very evil demons, and they are locked up. Now, we saw in the 8th chapter, or the early part of the ninth chapter, that the abyss is going to be opened, and they're going to be released, and they're going to wage war. And so some demons are temporarily bound, and all evil is going to be unloosed when the pollen opens up the abyss during the time of the tribulation. Then there are some unrestricted fallen angels. We wage war, Paul said, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, evil forces that are at work. There are evil forces that are at work that are waging war against countries and against especially God's people and working in the hearts of unbelievers in order to craft the world system in which we are living. Then there are territorially bound angels, and we have one example here this morning in Revelation 9. There are angels who are bound in a particular zone until God says, go. God allows them to go. And then in the end, all angels, as we will see, will end up in the place of eternal judgment. Satan is not in hell. He's never been there. There's not a single angel in hell. Now, there's a place called Hades. He's never been there either. Some people have this image of Satan with a pitchfork and he's down in hell. He's down there with his devil friend now. Satan's not in hell. None of his angels are, but they will be. It's coming. We'll study that later on. Don't get your theology from a cartoon. Get it from the Word of God, all right? So nonetheless, these four angels are territorially bound at the Euphrates River. And so there are demons who are very organized 
and who have territories. Even in Luke 8, those angels who are begging Jesus not to be sent into the abyss say, don't, don't let us leave this countryside. Why? Because that was their area. That was their zone. That's where they work and play and tempt and toil against man. Well, these angels are bound at the river Euphrates. In fact, uh, hold your finger here for a moment and turn to the book of Daniel. If you're new to the Bible, Daniel's not too hard to find. Find Psalms. It's in the Old Testament. Psalms is about dead center. And then if you will turn to the right, skim to the right, before too long, you will come to Daniel. And go to Daniel chapter 10. Jesus refers to Daniel as Daniel the prophet. Now, the critics in our day call him Daniel the historian. They say Daniel didn't even write the book of Daniel, that it was a second century A.D. work because the prophecies are so clear, so specific, so profound. They say it had to have been written after the fact because no one knows the future like that. Well, God knows the future, and he wrote through Daniel, and he recorded it to us. And so Jesus in Matthew 24 refers to him as Daniel the prophet, though I want to say a lot of the critics' arguments were dissolved when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Verse 11, chapter 10, he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have spoken I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So here's Daniel. He was sacrificially removing some of the food from his presence. He was seeking the Lord God for three weeks in prayer. Then verse 12, he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to your words. So here he is humbling himself for three weeks before God. And of course, God immediately heard his prayer the moment it was uttered. Isaiah 65 says, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. Listen, your, your, your prayers travel at the speed of light even faster. Even before we can get them out of our mouths, God hears them. But it took three weeks for God to send the answer to his prayer. Now, understand there are different reasons given in the word of God as to why we don't see immediate answers to prayer. Sometimes we ask with wrong motives. We ask amiss. And God allows time to transpire to show us how wrong we are in asking what we're asking for. Or sometimes God uses a natural means to accomplish his purpose, and it takes time for that natural means to unfold to bring the answer. Or sometimes, more often than not, we're not in proper relationship with God, and so he doesn't answer our prayer. We dump those verses out of context on the unbeliever, that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It doesn't have anything to do with the unbeliever, nor the Isaiah verse. It deals with the believer. It deals with God not answering the prayer of the believer. Now, it is true that all of the promises in the Word of God in reference to answered prayer are given to God's people and not unbelievers, but that doesn't mean God can't answer the prayer of an unbeliever. He answered the prayer of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 before he was saved, as Acts 11 underscores. So God can do whatever He wants, but He warns Christians and Old Testament saints, if I regard, some of your translations say, if I cherish, if I harbor, not if I sin, but if I cling to sin, 
If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So there are different reasons as to why God doesn't immediately answer, but it's a good reminder that God's delays are not always his denials. But don't miss the reason given here in chapter 10. It's uniquely different. Now, follow closely. It's a fascinating text, and I don't know really of any other text in all the Bible that is quite like it. As soon as Daniel's prayer is uttered, God dispatches an angel, the word angelos, malak in Hebrew means a messenger, because of the nature of the answer God needs to give, he's going to send one of his personal representatives to give a clear, specific, detailed answer to his prophet. But on the way there, he gets into a war. Look at verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, you know him, the archangel, one of the chief princes, came to to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now, clearly, the context is not dealing with human princes, but with angelic princes. Daniel had asked God for help, and God decided to answer directly by sending an angel. And on the way, the angel, he says, is intercepted by a fallen angel. And there's a war that goes on for 21 days. Now, verse 13 of this chapter teaches me that there was this conflict, which pictures for you what we read about in Ephesians 6. There are angels at work in the invisible realm. There are holy angels here today. Our congregation is a lot bigger than you realize. Angels, when the church gather for worship, they come and observe us. And there are fallen angels that are waging war against us. But it's clear from the fact that no human could withstand someone like Michael, not for 21 seconds or 21 hours, much less 21 days. This is a battle that's going on in the angelic realm. You say, Pastor Carl, what do fallen angels do? They help run Satan's world. And this right now is, in one sense, Satan's world. When Satan tempts the Lord Jesus, you can read of it in Matthew 4, Luke 4, he said to him, all these things will I give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Christ never disputed that claim. He didn't say, well, the kingdoms of this world are not yours to give. They are. Adam lost it, and so we studied in the fifth chapter. Jesus was given the title deed. He's coming back to reclaim it, and a day will come when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And of course, we learned in chapter 5 that when the Father hands him that scroll, that that, that is what is going to initiate him capturing back what Adam lost. And so the Apostle John, like Jesus on three different occasions in John's gospel, he calls Satan the prince of this world. John writes in his first letter, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Equally, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, in whose case the God, small g, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. Right now, this world belongs to Satan, and he runs it through his demons, and they're organized. So we reference here the prince of Persia, and if you drop down to verse 20, there's another fallen prince, the prince of Greece. And I'm sure there's a prince here for the United States, maybe dozens that are at work that are working in leaders and tempting them and luring them 
just as demons work. You know, he doesn't, a demon doesn't have to directly attack you. He can attack some Hollywood producer to create some dirty, filthy movie that millions will watch. And so they work in so many creative ways. Look at verse 20. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm coming forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. This angel who brings Daniel the answer said, he'll be returning to fight the prince of Persia. What I'm wanting you to say is that holy angels and unholy angels are ranked and organized. Now go back to Revelation 9. That's an important theological framework that we need as we study this chapter. One of God's holy angels says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so first we notice that the demons for this future time frame in human history come from a distinct place. But notice also the demons come for a distinct purpose. They not only come from a distinct place bound at the river Euphrates, they come for a distinct purpose. Look now, if you will, at verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now, again, most of Satan's angels are free to wage war in the heavenly places. Yet these four fallen angels have been bound probably for some extra evil that they have done, just like there are angels who are bound in the abyss. All angels are not equally evil, just like all humans are not equally evil in their expression. We're all fallen and lost and depraved in our nature, but that depravity can come out in an Adolf Hitler or in a little self-righteous school teacher who's never murdered anyone. Sin is sin is sin, but it can express itself in different ways, just as it does in the angelic realm. And so these four fallen angels are here near the river Euphrates. Here's a map of it. As this slide shows, the Euphrates River flows out of the mountains of Armenia down through present-day Iraq and Iran and into the Persian Gulf. Some of you Marines were engaged in the first Gulf War of 1991, that 100-hour ground campaign where the U.S. Armed Forces pin the Republican Guard of Iraq there at the Euphrates River. Well, once again, this ancient and historic river will be the place where these four fallen angels will come. And God has a plan. He has a purpose at a specific notice, hour, day, month, and year when these angels will be released. And it reminds me, that God is in control. Satan may be the God of this world, but he cannot do anything apart from God's sovereign purposes. There's not a blade of grass that blows in the wind or a speck of dust that can fall apart from the sovereign hand of God Almighty. Now, if you remember in Revelation 6 and verse 8, we discovered that the rider on the ashen horse wiped out one-fourth of the world's population. Now, we're going to read here this morning that when the sixth trumpet is blown, notice, a third of mankind perishes. Now, kids, you remember your fractions, right? What's one-fourth plus one-third? You've got to find the lowest common denominator, 12, seven twelfths. Over half the earth is going to be wiped out. Now, wonder, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, 
No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So this is a time of demonic activity. Secondly, this is a time of destructive activity. These four filthy, foul demons are intent on killing one-third of all of humanity. Now, that's pretty incredible. And so there are a couple of things that I want you to see. First, the number of this army. The number in this army that this these four filthy, I call them by nickname the filthy four, uh, the, the, the army that they are going to unleash. Now, if you thought the locusts, with human heads and long hair and sharp teeth were strange enough, you better tighten your pew belt because it gets a whole lot more hairy. And we're going to see here an army of 200 million. Look at verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, please understand, John is carried up into heaven in 95 A.D., he is able to see the future before it happens. And in 95 AD, there were not 200 million people alive on planet Earth. Now, we don't think sometimes about the population realm that we live in, but let me refresh your mind. In 1804, as this chart reminds you, we reached the first billion people in human history. From the creation of Adam and Eve till 1804, it took that long for us to reach one billion people. In 1927, the population turned to two billion. Then uh, the next billion came in 1959, where we hit three billion. And after that, the rate is accelerated. 74, 4 billion. 87, 5 billion. 99, 6 billion. 2011, 7 billion. And in four years, they project approximately 8 billion people on the earth. Now understand, there are as many people alive today on planet earth as has lived in all of human history. We're living in an incredible time in the history of the world. And so when John writes, and he writes of an army of 200 million, there are not even 200 million people alive on planet Earth. So no doubt God has in pen. I heard the number because he wants to underscore. This is not John guesstimating this army he sees. He hears the number specifically, and he writes it down for us to read. Now, this is, again, one of the verses that the critics love to attack, and they say the Bible is filled with error and myth, but they are twisting the Scriptures to their own destruction. And by the way, if you remember in the introductory message for the book of Revelation, we saw that there are different approaches as to how to interpret it. Jesus took the futuristic approach, so I'll take that beginning in chapter 4. But some of our brethren, primarily in the Reformed Calvinistic traditions, they take a preterist view of the book of Revelation. The word preter is the Latin word that means past. And they say everything we're reading happened on or before 70 A.D., Listen, that's just nonsense. You have to twist the scriptures, rationalize them, spiritualize them, and you cannot plainly interpret them. Not to mention there's never been a time in human history where one third of the world's population was wiped out as we read here. So how does one manufacture an army of 200 million people. Now, during World War II, when the greatest number of American soldiers were serving, there were 12 million who were enlisted in an active service. 
In fact, the total number in all of the armies on both sides during the Second World War reached 70 million. It is true that in 1965, on the cover of Life magazine, China claimed to have an army of 200 million people. Well, as it turns out, they only had 2 million people. Uh, but nonetheless, the prophecy nuts went wild. They said, there it is, 200 million. Ah, oh, this is revelation. This is the army that John wrote about. Well, let me refresh your mind. These are statistics as of 2017 put out by the International Institute for Strategic Studies, who are supposedly the top group on these numbers. Here's the 10 largest armies in the world. China is the largest, 2,285,000. USA, we have 1,431,000. India is third, 1,325,000. North Korea, after them, 1,190,000. Russia, all the way down to Vietnam, 482,000. Now, according to this same authoritative group, if you take all of the armies in the world, and I saw a list of every one, and I mean, some countries have like a 100 in their army, not very impressive, but if you take all of them in the world, there's 27,437,280 active personnel worldwide. And then there's 49.8 million reservists, and then supposedly about 7 million paramilitary. If you add them all together, that's 84.2 million. My point in sharing this with you is that even if you took all of the armies of the world, active, inactive, paramilitary in the world today, you wouldn't come up with this number, 200 million. Verse 16, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And so beyond the number of the army, I want you to consider the nature of this army, the nature of this army. Now, I have some commentaries in my library. I have about 50 commentaries in the book of Revelation, and they go wacko with this passage, and it sells books. I could preach a sermon that would tantalize you and make you interested and maybe even pack the seats more, but I'd be lying to you. And it wouldn't be truthful, and it wouldn't be sound exegetical principles that I would be using. Now, it's interesting to make the descriptions of what we're going to read here to be symbolic of tanks and helicopters and rockets that are coming out of them and the back end of an F-18, and, and it would be very tantalizing, and, but that's not what the text is referring to. Now, Hal Lindsey made it that way, and he sold millions of books. Millions of books. Now, Hal was on staff when I was on staff with Campus Crusade, and I think it was after the third or fourth wife, none of us wanted to hear him anymore. You need to be careful when you read. Certainly, when you read the Revelation, there are symbols in it. But we have seen there are similes. It's like this or it's as this. And so you try to discern, well, what is the symbol? John says that this was communicated through symbols, and a lot of the symbols are interpreted within Revelation or from the Old Testament itself. Of the 404 verses, 300 are from the Old Testament. That's about 75% of the Revelation. And so God interprets the Revelation for us. But once you interpret the symbol, then you believe it literally. Okay? Well, unless there's a simile, it's like this or as this, then you literally interpret it. And these are a description of fallen, wicked, evil angels. Now, this parallels what we saw in the first half of the chapter. Even Hal Lindsey, 
And a lot of the wacko commentaries don't think the first half of the chapter is some tank or rocket or anything like that because they can't do that with it because there is an angel appalling who opens up the abyss and releases his army of locust-like demons who come across the earth. And so we're just following the same pattern. Look at verse 17. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. This is not some science fiction movie. Once again, these are not missile spitting helicopters and missiles with flames coming out. There's no reason to interpret this except at face value. We've already seen in the fourth chapter of the Revelation, as well as in the book of Ezekiel, that, for instance, an angel can have a face like a lion. I mean, some of those angels, they're really kind of bizarre looking. I'm looking forward to seeing them someday. I mean, and and what was true of all of God's holy angels, a third of them fell and rebelled. So we're in the lead. We got two-third good angels against one-third of the fallen angels. But some of them are bizarre looking, and now they've taken on two fallen characteristics. John writes here of the color of fire. It's the word Turos, we saw it translated as red, the red dragon and the red horseman and the blood and the war that they bring. And then he mentions here the color hyacinth, which is a brilliant blue. And he mentions brimstone, which is a lemon yellow. Three primary colors represented here in the text. I mean, is this some tank? Oh, Joe, I, I love your red, yellow, and blue tank. Just makes me feel good inside. I don't think so. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. So we have a simile here. They're like the heads of lions. And then we have reality. And out of their mouth come fire and smoke and brimstone. Listen, God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. The problem with so many people in understanding the revelation is they just don't take it at face value. They fail to believe what God plainly said. And if you will simply believe what he wrote, it becomes very clear. Three judgments mentioned here, fire and smoke and brimstone. And twice over in verse 18 and verse 20, you ought to circle it, they're called three plagues. Now, you show me a plague that God used some human instrument in which to enact, and then I can show you a tank in this passage. But all the plagues in the Word of God come under the sovereign hand of God Almighty. These are real plagues. There are no metaphors. He speaks of fire that's literal, smoke that's literal, brimstone that is literal, just as these three were literal in Sodom. Someone asked me just this week, and they said, well, Jesus never spoke on homosexuality. I said, yes, he did. Number one, in defining marriage between a man and a woman, and also in describing his second coming, when he likens it to the days of Noah, days of moral impropriety, and the days of Lot, days of moral perversion. And he described the judgment that came on those two cities with the fire and brimstone and smoke. Listen, just as the judgment that came on those two cities was a real, literal judgment, as Jesus explained it, this is a real, literal judgment that won't come on just two cities, but it's going to come across the planet. Look at verse 16, 18. A third of mankind was killed. 
by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. That's pretty heavy. If it happened today, there are 7.6 billion people on the earth. Remember the fourth seal, the fourth rider took out one third of the earth. This particular, or one-fourth of the earth, and this trumpet brings out one-third of the earth. That's seven-twelfths of the population. If it happened today, there would be 4.4 dead, 4.4 billion dead people across the planet. Whoa. For the power, verse 19, of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. So unlike the first horde of demons that we studied in the first half of chapter 9 that can only torture men, these four demons have an army that can kill men, and they will kill on a massive scale. Their heads can bite like a lion, and their tails can sting like serpents, a lion. And of course, the serpent are two deadly killers. They're hideous in their appearance, and it's a reflection of how evil and fallen. I'm telling you, this chapter, among other things and other passages we're going to study, when you get a picture of what demons actually look like, unlike some of the holy angels that are more friendly in appearance, these demons are so heinous and evil, you're getting a reflection of what is really happening in the demonic realm. You think about that. When Satan lures you, you think about the real evil that is behind that lure because these are evil, evil fallen creatures. This is a time of demonic activity. It's a time of destructive activity. Finally, this is a time of depraved activity. Now, you might think that this incredible and unprecedented time of death and destruction would bring people to repentance, but we will see it will not. First, man's depravity is seen in worship, in his worship. Man's depravity is seen in his worship. Now, in spite of these six trumpets that God has allowed, we're told that the rest of mankind would still not repent of their rebellious lifestyle. The Apostle John now enumerates on man's worship, and then he's going to explain his works. Look at his worship in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They're they're worshiping idols. And behind these idols, they're worshiping demons. We have a number of brothers and sisters in both services today from India. You go to India and just about every 10 yards, there's some idol, it seems. The whole country is covered over in idolatry. In fact, a large percentage of the world still worships precisely as described in this text. And the reason some of these idols seem so real to people, though they're just pieces of glass or stone or wood, is because as Paul explains to the Corinthians, behind the object there's a demon, which makes it seem so real. And so sometimes... It starts small. Someone goes to a medium or fortune teller. Yeah, let's go see that medium. It'll be fun. And they don't know what they're getting into. And sometimes otherwise intelligent people. Look at Nancy Reagan, how she would meet with her medium on a regular basis to find out the future of her family. And then you have families who keep good luck charms, crystals and amulets and figurines. 
But listen, that's a dangerous practice to do that. And God reminds us, of course, that these objects can either see nor hear nor walk. He is contrasting their worship of the creation with the one whom they should be worshiping, the Creator God. And in spite of all these judgments that God wants to use to bring about repentance, they still don't repent. So their depravity is seen in their worship, but also in their works. In their works, verse 21 now. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Look, when the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit is removed, when the church is raptured, sin is going to spread in an unprecedented way. One of the reasons it's spreading so much today is because the church is getting weaker and weaker, and we are seeing what Jesus said would happen at the end of time. He will come back for a lukewarm church, and we're losing our salt and our light, and that gives evil a chance to spread. And the average Christian in America no longer shares the gospel. The average Christian in America no longer tries to reach their lost friend or neighbor. And when that happens, when the light is lowered and the salt is, loses its saltiness, evil spreads. But when the church is removed, evil is going to spread like we've never, ever seen it. They did not repent of their murders. Look, we have murder across our planet. Sixty-plus million Americans are missing 465 million worldwide through the infanticide of abortion. It's not an unforgivable sin, but it is still nonetheless murder. It's not a woman's right to take an innocent human little baby. But look, at this time in human history, the law of the jungle is going to kick in. Why? Because so much of the planet is going to be terrorized and the waters and the trees and the vegetation and it's fight your neighbor to get food from them even if it means murder. They didn't repent of their sorceries. Pharmakia, we get our English word pharmacy from it. The world will be on drugs. When people enter into the realm of drugs, they are entering into the realm of sorcery. And these politicians need their heads examined. Ask any police officer, and they will tell you that legalized marijuana is the doorway drug into harder drugs. And when we have men like Tom Davis, and I will do everything in my power to get you unelected, because every time he stands up on the floor of the Senate in South Carolina, he will talk about legalizing pot in this state. I'm telling you, you want Colorado and what they're experiencing? A lot of the politicians now have deep, deep regrets over what is happening in that state. You don't want this. Look at their, this so-called medical marijuana is an evil beyond evil. Not to mention you have Christians who say, well, I don't smoke a joint, but I like a beer before I go to bed or a glass of wine with my pizza. What, Jesus won't satisfy you? you got to have a buzz in order to be happy on the inside? Third, they wouldn't repent of their immorality, pornea. We got our word pornography from it. It's used in the Bible to refer to either premarital sex or any kind of sexual immorality outside of marriage. Imagine, even in the face of one-third of the planet being wiped out, you would think, oh, my 
We need to get right with God. They would not repent of what they've done. And that doesn't totally shock us. 9-11 came and for three weeks, the churches were packed. And then we forgot about it. We don't need God anymore. Now, how are we going to apply this? Remember, all Scripture is profitable. Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, this chapter should should increase your appreciation for God's timing, for God's timing. This passage mentions specifically the hour, the day, the month, or the year when the sixth trumpet will be blown. Timing is everything to God. For centuries, God's Jewish people prayed for Messiah, and Paul said, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, he came into this world. Second Peter chapter 3 reminds us that in the last days, men will mock God and Christians over preachers like me who talk about Jesus coming back. And Peter says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. God has not forgotten. God is on a perfect timetable. He knows exactly what he is doing. And when you read this chapter of Scripture, remember, all Scripture is given to equip you. Even though this is of a future time, it is a reminder that our God is working everything under his timetable. Secondly, this chapter should increase your appreciation of God's sovereignty. It should be a fresh reminder to all of us of the seriousness of demons, but nonetheless that God is sovereign even over the demonic realm. A demon like Satan, and we've seen it all the way through Revelation, and we're going to continue to see it, are under God's sovereignty. I mean, go back in this chapter. Look at verse 1 of this chapter. We're told the key was given to him. That fallen angel just couldn't grab the key and open it when he wanted it. The key was given to him to open up the abyss. Look at verse 3. We're told that power was given to them, meaning the power that these demons had was a delegated power. It was given to them. Verse 4, we're told here, they were told not to hurt the the foliage. And again in verse 5, they were not permitted to kill anyone. Again, they're under the sovereignty of God. Verse 14, the four angels were bound and then they were released at the sovereign hand of God. Why is this important? You need to remember God is sovereign. We are living in a day where it just seems like there's a dark cloud of evil that's coming across the land. I mean, there's relentless reporting almost daily of sexual harassment reported on some congressman or lawyer or preacher or pastor or politician. Add to that, we have uh, pornography that is covering the land. We have gay and transgender lifestyles that are being promoted, even in the programming of little children. Do you know what your little children are watching on TV? If you will sit and listen, you will find there is a message behind a lot of it that is antithetical to the Word of God. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's atheists who are bent on taking every vestige of God and Christianity and our Judeo-Christian ethic out of our society. Add to that, you've got terrorists. It's not just a strap-on vest bomb anymore, but now they have cars and trucks. We're maybe on the verge of a nuclear war. There's a spread of evil that is encompassing our culture and not just our culture, but our world. It is absolutely incredible. The forces of evil 
are spreading, but God is sovereign over it all. He knows what is happening. Police shootings, they're happening almost daily. We need to pray for our policemen. We have a lot of policemen in this church. We need to pray for them, for the work that they do. And then bombings in once sacred places like churches, in once safe places like school, we just blink. What's another one? Just become commonplace. But God is over it all, Martin Luther. At a time when he was under great tribulation, he penned these words, A mighty fortress is our God, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. We must never forget that. Satan cannot do whatever he wants whenever he wants. You are from God, little children, John wrote, and have overcome them because greater is he, the Lord, who is in you than he that is in the world. Satan wanted to sift Peter, but as Luke 23 indicates, he needed God's permission. Satan wanted to wipe out Job, but he wasn't given that authority. Satan is on a leash because God is absolutely sovereign over him. I remember hearing Corey Temboom as a relatively new Christian in a great church in Boston that is now apostate. And she said this, I will never forget her words. If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will become depressed. But if you look at Christ, you will find rest. Look, our God is sovereign. Rest in Him. He is on His throne. Third and finally, This chapter should increase your appreciation for the mercy of God, for God's mercy. I mean, think about it. If God so chose, he could have just in one swift judgment wiped out the whole planet. But he doesn't. He takes seven years to unfold this. Why? Because it's his final wake-up call. He is giving man just a sampling, just an inkling of what is going to come in that awful place called the lake of hell that we're going to study. And he wants people to repent and get right with him. You would think a lot of people at this point would say, some Messiah, you are Antichrist. Look what you rule over. What a mess we're in. But because many times men love sin more than the light, they will not come to the Lord. Look, I study this passage this week and I feel compassion in my heart because I know this day is coming. It is going to come. And those who have heard the gospel prior to the rapture and clarity and in power will not have a chance during this time. They will become a part of the great delusion, the judgment that God will send upon the earth. We'll study it when we come to the 13th chapter. But my heart has a sense of compassion where I think this is just an inkling. This is just a flavor of the eternal judgment that is yet to come. And as Christians, we need to speak up. We need to be faithful stewards of the gospel that God has given us. We need to reach out. By the way, we can see more happen in this service. The first service is three times as many people. And I realize 200 of them are over there in Hilton Head. But look, we need to reach out in this service more. We, We need to trust God. We need to believe God to bring people to himself because God is not desirous that people perish, but they come to repentance. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you that... 
there's a trumpet that is going to be sounded for your church. You said you will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are alive will be caught up and brought up into heaven with them. We look forward to that great day, but we pray in the interim we would be faithful stewards of the gospel message, the treasure that you've entrusted to us. Father, we acknowledge just as you literally, actually fulfilled every single prophecy for your first coming, we have no doubt you'll do the same for the second. And so help us to realize the great implications of the wrath of the Lamb upon the throne that is coming, that is a picture of your eternal wrath. God, give us opportunity even this week in compassion in our souls for people who have lost their way. Help us, our Father, to point them to the good news of a Savior who's died for them. Help someone today, Father, even within the sound of my voice, who's unsure of their salvation because they are looking to self to redeem themselves. Help reveal to them, Father, that it is the death, burial, and resurrection that saves. That only the grace shown through Jesus' substitutionary death can deliver one. Help one, Father, today to say, Jesus, save even me. We'll give you the praise and the honor in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.